you all interact with me here. John who? John the, John the Baptist. So apparently, John had taught his disciples to pray, and now Jesus is going to teach his disciples to pray. Do you think we'd be in bounds to say that prayer is a learned thing and we ought to teach each other how to pray? And I put on my prayer request right away as I was listening to this seven-part series, Lord, please teach me to pray. And not just how to do it. To do it. Teach me to pray. I love the quote by um, A.C. Dixon. He said, around us, I'm sorry, he said, when we rely on organization, we get what organization can do. When we rely upon education, we get what education can do. When we rely upon eloquence, you know, powerful speaking, we get what eloquence can do. But when we rely upon prayer, we get what God can do. That is well said. Let me reiterate the statement I made yesterday. I told you you'd probably hear it again. A simple sentence from a man named Owen Carr. A day without prayer is a boast against God. That's worth writing down. A day without prayer is a boast against God. As I said yesterday, in effect, when we don't pray, we're saying, thanks, Lord, I got it today. None of us would ever verbalize that to God. But that's what we're saying when we don't pray. I'll handle it. And you say, I I, I don't mean that. No, you don't mean it, but that's what you're saying. If you don't pray, that's what I'm saying. If I don't pray. So let's dive into it. I hope that'll help you understand the importance of where we're going. Lord, teach us to pray. And and what was interesting as uh, this this preacher was going through his seven-part series, he said, you know why the Lord gave this? We call it the model prayer. It's really a template. It's, It's an outline. It's a pattern of how to pray. He said, what he gives here are six different parts. It's like a six-point outline. And he said, you remember when he asked the disciples, could you not watch with me one hour? You you don't go from just becoming a brand-new Christian to suddenly pray for an hour. How how do you get there? He said, you ever been like a lot of people I've prayed with for the first time? They're ready to go to an all-night prayer meeting, and uh, they get on their knees, and they start pouring their heart out before God, and in five minutes they prayed about everything they know to pray about, and they don't know what else to say. That's how it is for all of us when we start. Think about it. When, when toddlers learn to walk, they don't go zipping across the room. They take a few steps, fall down, get up, go back. and We, we learn by progression, don't we? Don't expect to be praying an hour a day if you're not praying five minutes a day. So start with something manageable and build from there. That's how I started with my own quiet time. I, I promised God when I was a teenager I would never shut the light off at the end of the night unless I'd spend at least five minutes with God reading the Bible. Now, it wasn't like I set the clock and went, okay, five minutes, go, ding, okay, done. It was The point was, I'm going to make some time for God every day, or so help me, I'm not shutting the light off at the end of the night, right? It, it was to develop a habit. Did you, you ever have to set a timer for the toothbrush for your kids? Did you brush your teeth? Shh, yep. Uh, yeah, okay, we need a little more than that, right? So you develop habits, well, I developed a habit of spending time with God as a ninth grader and continued all the way through my life to now. And it took time to develop a habit of prayer. But I want to challenge you, it's not just habit for habit's sake, like check off the list, I did it. Let me tell you, well, in fact, here's another great quote. E.M. Bounds, I mistakenly started to quote this one. E.M. Bounds, who, if you can get anything by E.M. Bounds on the topic of prayer, it's worth getting. He wrote a whole seven volumes on the subject of prayer, and they're worth having. He said, around us is a world lost in sin. Above us is a God willing and able to save. It is our duty to build the bridge that binds heaven and earth, and prayer is the mighty instrument that does the work. Meaning, 
world separated from God. They're not interested in God, but somehow we've got to build the bridge that gets man to God. You know, Jesus Christ paved that way with, his, with the cross, the work on the cross. But prayer is what bridges the gap between man and God. Uh, some people say, I try to talk to my relatives about the Lord, brother. You know, I pray, but they, but they don't want to listen to me. And what do you do if people will let you talk to them about the Lord? Here's a great one. If you can't talk to men about God, you can always talk to God about men. Amen. Think about that. When you can't talk to men about God, you can always talk to God about men. That's called intercessory prayer. So they asked, Lord, teach us to pray. And I love this. Let's start with then verse 2. He obliges them. He says, well, when you pray, here's how we're going to do it. He said, when you pray, say, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, let me just, before I get into the outline, just let's talk about the noun of direct address there, first of all. Our Father which art in heaven. Isn't that incredible? He, he didn't say our boss, our captain, our general, our president, our king. It's our Father. The word Father is such a unique authoritarian relationship. In fact, it's why during the men's retreat this weekend, I was talking to the guys about the traditional family is under attack in our society. The, the enemy knows that he's got to blow up the concept of the nuclear family, the traditional family, if he's going to fundamentally change society. I mean, you need no further proof to see that our prisons are populated with people who came out of fatherless homes. It, it's an it's a epidemic problem. So how do you say our Father, which, is our, which art in heaven? I mentioned this yesterday, but it's worth reiterating. God is not everybody's Father. He wants to be. He is everyone's creator. He made everybody. But remember this. Jesus said in John chapter 8 to some very religious Jews, his own chosen people, you're of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. How does God become your father? I, I grew up in a church that falsely taught the universal fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man. Everybody's my fellow brother. Okay, okay, I get it. And God's our father. Ah, time out. No, he's not. John 1 verse 12 says, As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Why does it say that? The word power there, it's interesting. It's like our term power of attorney. Have any of you ever had to exercise power of attorney on behalf of somebody else? You know, some of us as our parents get older and they start losing their cognitive ability. And so I had this with my mom. My sisters and I had this with my mom. We, we got authority to exercise um, uh, decisions regarding the family trust, etc. On behalf of our mom, it's called power of attorney. Power of attorney is legal right to act in behalf of another. Okay, as many as received him to them, gave he power, that's the legal right, to become the sons of God. You're not automatically a son of God. To become a son of God, you must be born again. What does that mean? Jesus is the one who coined the term born again. John chapter 3, a man named Nicodemus came to him. He was the chief, uh, chief teacher of the Jews. And he said, Rabbi, speaking to Jesus, we know thou art come from God. No man can do these miracles thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, how, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. What's he speaking about? Nicodemus couldn't understand it. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. He says, you know, you hear the wind blowing. You don't know where it came from or where it's going, but you see its effects. So is everyone that's born of the spirit of God. And then he gives the most powerful of all scriptures in the Bible. 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He's saying, Nicodemus, you're a religious man, but your religion won't get you to heaven. Nobody's religion will get him or her to heaven. If religion could save you, if your church could save you, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Church can't save you. Your good works can't save you. The scripture is clear. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. February 12, 1977, I called on the Lord Jesus Christ to be my Savior, the most important day of my life. I was born again as God's Spirit brought to me the realization I'm lost in my sins, and even though I go to church, I'm headed to hell. I am separated from God by my sin. And I, I repented, changed my mind about my guilt. I'm not good, I'm guilty. And I put my total trust in Him. I just depended upon Him. I, it's no work of anything I do. I'm just trusting Him for His salvation already provided. When you come to that point of trusting Christ, at that point you will be born again. That's what it means. As many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God. I, I would plead with you, if you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord, anything else I say about prayer will be extra. The first and foremost prayer you need to pray is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, please save me. When that happens then you can do as Jesus taught his disciples. You can say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, what was the outline? Notice, first thing he says, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What does hallowed mean? Held in reverence, highly esteemed, treated with dignity and appropriate respect. All right, so it starts with this. If you want to follow along, the outline's really easy. I will use the letter P. Like Peter, praise, okay? Provision. Uh, and we're going to use the letter P for our outline. We're going to start with number one, praise to God. Praise to God. Now, in our uh, prayer time tonight, I was talking about this. I'm, I'm going through prayers in the Bible, and I've been asking the Lord, please teach me to pray. And I mentioned last night, you know, if, if prayer is, a, is like being in school, I don't want to spend all my life in kindergarten or grade school. I really want to move up through the through the grade levels. Um, not, not so I can show off a degree. You don't get a degree in prayer. But to grow closer to God, to be more effective, effective in praying for people. So man, I've been asking the Lord, Lord, would you enroll me? Teach me. Teach me to pray. Well, I noticed this in the Bible. One area that I see we are very weak in American praying is the matter of praise or thanks. Now, it's a cliche in our praying, you know, we're really good at cliches, uh, you know, commonly used phrases. Have you ever heard people say, Lord, please do this, this, and this, and we'll be sure to give you the thanks and the praise. You ever heard that? Do you, do you listen when people pray? How much thanks and praise do we usually hear? Not very much. In fact, you know what the extent of it usually is? <laughs> Lord, thank you for this day. Now, let me ask you, if we took out of your prayer life the sentence, thank you for this day, would you even know how to start praying? Some people, that's like their launch pad to praying, right? Lord, thank you for this day. And now we engage our mind, then we start praying. Yeah. Okay, so let me ask you this. For what did you praise God today? For what did you thank Him the last time you started praying? Go back with me to Psalm 100, if you will. Psalm 100. This is a whole psalm on the topic of praise. It's only five verses. As you're turning there, I'll start quoting it. I think many of you know it. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. 
It is he that hath made us, not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And I want you to notice verse 4. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him, and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy endureth forever. I'm sorry, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. All right, now notice the, uh, right above verse 1, what is the title of this psalm? A psalm of praise. That's really interesting. The preacher I was listening to out of Texas said, that's the only time you find the inscription, a psalm of praise, in all 150 psalms. I thought, well, that's interesting, because a lot of them have to do with psalms, uh, with praise, but that's the only time you see it entitled, a psalm of praise. And then he went on to say, it's commonly believed that this was a psalm that the Jews would recite or sing as they were approaching the house of worship. Originally, that was the tabernacle. Later, it was the temple. Such interesting. Uh, have you ever, anybody here ever been to a replica of the old tabernacle? There's one up in Pennsylvania, the Mennonites put together. I think there was one in Arkansas. Anybody ever been to a replica of, okay. So I, I grew up in South Jersey. I went over to Pennsylvania and toured the Mennonites' um, uh, facsimile of the tabernacle. Really interesting. Badger skin around it. And I got thinking of this, looking at the tabernacle. He says, enter into his gates with thanksgiving. Okay, the gate is the perimeter of the property. But then he says, enter into his courts with praise. Now, uh, I think to make the picture better, let me switch to the tabernacle here, because some of you would remember the tabernacle, I'm sorry, the, the temple. Let me switch to the temple, because some of you remember studying the temple. When you came to the temple, you would uh, initially come through what was called the court of Gentiles, so non-Jews could go that far. Then there was the court of women, and Jewish women could go that far. Then there was the court of Israel, Jewish men could go there. And then there was the court of priests, and the priests would go to do the sacrifices. Then there's the Holy of Holies, and only one guy once a year could go there. Who was that? The high priest, yeah. Okay, so you remember, you have a progression here coming through the courts. So courts of Gentiles, women, Israel, priests. But as you progress through each court, you're getting closer and closer to the holy place. Okay, notice the picture of draw nigh to God. How do you get from coming in the gates to draw nigh to God? Praise is the door. Praise is the pathway. And uh, I remember hearing in that message on prayer, he said that praise is the front and the back door of prayer. He was pointing out the Matthew account, says, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then the prayer ends in Matthew for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. He said, notice, you come into God's presence with praise, and you exit his presence with praise. How often do we see that in our American experience? I have to tell you, not very often. I'm in a prayer meeting almost every night. Now, we did a really good job of it tonight. Um, I, I did point it out say, hey, let's really make this a practice. Hopefully that goes on all the time. I, I'm not saying this to judge. I'm just saying, you know, if you go to the doctor and he tells you you have a vitamin deficiency, he's not trying to insult you. He's saying, hey, we need to get some vitamins in your diet here, right? Okay, so very interesting. Let me make a distinction between thanksgiving and praise. There is a slight distinction between the two. They are related, but there's a distinction. Thanksgiving is expressing gratefulness for what God has done. Praise is exalting God for who he is. Okay, think about that. Thanksgiving is expressing gratitude for what God's done. So, you know, when, when Sean took me out to eat tonight, I said, man, thanks, Sean, that was really kind. And that's, that's just common courtesy, okay? The man paid for my meal, took me out, spent time, opened up his heart to me. 
you say thanks. Okay, how often do we really take time to thank God? The book of Psalms says he daily loadeth us with benefits. Huh, how much praise, uh, thanking do you do? Not only that, but then praise is exalting God for who he is. Now, this brings you to a new level of intimacy. Instead of just thanking him for his benefits that he daily loads us with, we focus on the benefactor, the one who gave them. And you say, Lord, you are so patient. You're so kind. You're El Shaddai. You are Jehovah. You know, you're I am that I am. Uh, El Shaddai, the, the, um, the God who meets every need. You're Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. You're Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. Jehovah Makedish, the God who sanctifies us. You're Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. You know, I start going through the names of God. Now I'm praising. That's why a study on the names of God can really benefit your prayer life. I'd recommend there are multiple books on the, on the names of God, but uh, Nathan Stone wrote a book called The Names of God. It's published by Moody. It was written in the 40s. But man, is it a powerful book. The Names of God. You want to develop an intimacy with God? Learn His names. Not only that, but learn His character traits, His attributes. A.W. Tozer wrote the book The Knowledge of the Holy. Really good on the study of the character traits of God. So you want to, you want to deepen your prayer life, get to know your God better. Interesting, Hebrews 13, 15 says, says, Let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. I got to think in the sacrifice of praise. How can praise be a sacrifice? Well, apparently it is a sacrifice. It's, it's precious. We've done happen a lot, right? But let me give you a few specific ways it's a sacrifice. How about when Paul and Silas were beaten for preaching the gospel, freeing a demon possessed girl, and at midnight, what did they do? Well, first they prayed but also they sang praises to God. Now, what's unique about that? When do we usually sing praises? Either in a formal worship service or after something really good happened. Oh, mom just got a clear diagnosis, had cancer, cancer-free, hallelujah. Then we praise God. What were Paul and Silas praising God for the night they were beaten and in prison? Wow, just got good news. We get out of here tomorrow. Parole's coming. Mm-mm. Wow, everybody in the prison got saved. Not at that point. What are they praising God for? They're just focusing on the person of God. That's the sacrifice of praise. You know, the sacrifice of praise is when you don't feel like you're a very good singer, but you sing anyway. You know, you ought to be good to sing in the church ensemble and the choir, and you ought to be good to sing a solo, but you don't have to be good to sing congregationally. We joke about it, you know, make a joyful noise in the Lord, and someone's like, oh. I, I was in a very large church recently, and with one of the men who was on staff there, and let me tell you, he sang horribly. I was a pastor for years, but his, oh, it was like, if I were a dog, I would have been howling just to, and, uh, but I will tell you something, I commend the man, he didn't let it hold him back, he sang. It was ugly, but he sang. And I'll tell you this, the Lord delights in it. The Lord says he inhabits the praises of his people. It wasn't because the man didn't care. It wasn't because the man, you know, well, he should know better. Well, he didn't. I mean, he didn't know how to sing, but he still sang. The sacrifice of praise. Sacrifice of praise. When you're at the workplace and somebody says, that was an amazing presentation you gave. Man, you killed it this month with those sales. And you say, well, praise God. You know, if you say praise God in church, that ought to be pretty normal. But when you say praise God out in the public, they're like, what are you, some kind of Bible thumper? Well, I just know who blessed me. 
the sacrifice of praise. So praise to God. That, that is the way we enter into his presence. I will tell you, if you'll chew on just that, it'll make a dramatic difference in your prayer life. But that's just the beginning. Let's go back to the text in Luke 11. So he says, you start with this, hallowed be thy name. And then he says, thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Now, number two, I'm calling petition for souls. Petition for souls. Now, let, let me tell you, I, I had to wrestle through this one as I thought, okay, thy kingdom come. Whew, now, usually we think of, of what kingdom when we're talking about the Lord's kingdom. You and I think about a coming time when the Lord will rule and reign on this earth. And I'll give you a hint. It will last for 10 centuries. What do we call it? Millennium. The millennium. Yeah. So we usually think of the millennial kingdom. And uh, there, there are some who relegate the Lord's prayer to being, well, that, that's for the millennium. Do you think something this powerful that has been quoted by Christians all through the centuries is only relegated to the millennial period? That never set well with me, that idea. And then I got thinking, all right, so would he teach us to pray thy kingdom come? I mean, the millennium's going to happen. Whether or not you believe it, you could be an amillennialist or postmillennialist, but I've got news for you. The millennium's going to happen, whether you pray about it or not. And then I thought, well, how about Daniel? I was just at... My daughter's church, Lighthouse Baptist in Gulf Breeze, and the pastor's been preaching through the book of Daniel. And last week, he was in Daniel chapter 9. And Daniel talks about, you know, he's realizing the end of the 70-year captivity is coming, and he begins to prepare his heart, and he begins to seek God. It's about three years before the captivity was up. And Daniel's an older man now. He's in his 80s at least by then. And he's, he's fasting and praying and seeking God, and he's praying for the restoration to the land. God already said it was going to happen. But Daniel's praying about it. So there's precedent for that. But I wondered, is there anything more to this? Thy kingdom come. What kingdom? Is it just the millennial kingdom? I remember, you know, and I am, I am dispensational in my theology. And I remember thinking uh, when I was in school, okay, sometimes you see the term kingdom of heaven. Sometimes you see the term kingdom of God. Well, maybe there's a distinction. You know, maybe, maybe kingdom of heaven refers to millennial kingdom of God is the souls of men or whatever. Well, as I study that further, sometimes Matthew uses one phrase and the other gospel writers use the other and they refer to the same event. So although I'm dispensational in my theology, I thought, well, you can't always neatly tie them up in a bow. Uh, so, and again, we're getting into nuance of interpretation. Please understand this. Whenever, whenever I go to some area like this, I like to say the Bible is perfect in inspiration. We're not always perfect in interpretation. Okay? So I, I want to recognize that it, as I'm wrestling through this, I thought, okay, how do you find the balance of this? Somebody gave me a book by Vance Havner called Living in Kingdom Come. You read that one? It's really good. And uh, let, me, let me read you just this excerpt. Help me really understand about praying, and especially about thy kingdom come. He says this, long ago, God sent his son to tell us about the kingdom of God. First of all, he came to deal with sin. For it was sin that wrecked the first creation. He took our sins upon him and died in our stead. The kingdom came first in the person of the king himself when Jesus lived on earth. He said, the kingdom of God is within you, Luke 17, 21. The kingdom was embodied in the king. And when he was among us, he gave us samples of what the visible kingdom will be like when he reigns on earth. Then he goes on to say this. In the meantime, the kingdom of God is the reign of God in the hearts of men who trust Christ as Savior and obey him as Lord. Now that's well said. In the meantime, in the present time, the kingdom of God is the reign of God in the hearts of men who trust Christ 
as Savior and obey him as Lord. Let me, let me put a pause on this for just a minute. Let me quote to you a few scriptures. You might want to jot them down that use the term either kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, and I'll continue the reading in a minute. I call on this petition for souls. Here's why. Matthew 4.23 refers to the gospel as the gospel of the kingdom. In Matthew 6.33, uh, many of you know this one, he says, Seek ye first the what? Kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Matthew 7.21, he says, Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Luke 17.20 says, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. In other words, it's not visible. And then he says, The kingdom of God is within you. Now, obviously, that's not talking about the millennial kingdom, because that one will be very observable. Every eye will see it. Uh, John 3, 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. I'll just give one more for time's sake. 1 Corinthians 15, 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So let me read that sentence again. In the meantime, the kingdom of God, I'm sorry, the kingdom is the reign of God in the hearts of men who trust Christ as Savior and obey Him as Lord. I thought about this. You know, what was the mistake the Jews made the first time in looking for the Christ? They thought He has to come and be a political Messiah. They, they thought He's going to come and He's going to free us from Roman oppression and deliver us from the times of the Gentiles. But here's what they missed. Before He could come as ruler, He first had to come as Redeemer. The heart of man is ungovernable until the heart of man is redeemed by God. So he had to come first as redeemer before he would be ruler. The first coming was about redemption. The second coming will be about ruling. He goes on to say here, it's a spiritual kingdom at present and cometh not with observation. It's not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Mind you, the righteousness comes before the peace and joy, and it's not a do-it-yourself proposition, but, quote, in the Holy Ghost. In other words, he's the one that has to make you alive. Nobody knows how many belong to the kingdom. Statistics don't help here. Plenty of church members do not belong, only the born-again, blood-washed children of God. Boy, that's a powerful thought. Not everybody who goes to church is part of the kingdom. Kingdom come is an invisible community now. Whenever men know and serve Christ, there's the kingdom. In that sense, the kingdom has already come. But in another sense, it's a coming kingdom when our Lord returns, and then there'll be a visible kingdom. It's both kingdom come and kingdom coming. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we pray for its coming in the conversion of souls. But we also pray for its final coming when our Savior comes back to earth. By the way, that's consistent with, uh, with Bible eschatology, with prophecy. You remember there are many times in Scripture where you have a double reference fulfillment? And this is why we have to be so careful in our, in our uh, systematic theology that we don't pin God into a box. We can reason so far, but I like to quote Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. And many say, well, yeah, we can't understand it. But wait a minute. The things which are revealed belong to us and to our children. He didn't reveal this stuff just so we could say, well, I don't understand it. He says, study to show thyself approved unto God. So study it out as much as you can. But let me ask you this. You may, may or may not agree with the theological conclusions of Vance Havner, but do you think you could all agree that praying for the kingdom of God certainly would entail praying for the salvation of souls? Amen. What would be more important than pray, praying for people to be saved? Amen. So it starts with praise to God, and then the next matter is petition for souls. But let me give you this one next, and it's the last one we'll cover tonight. 
purpose in life. Purpose in life. Notice, after thy kingdom come, he says, thy will be done as in heaven, so on earth. Let me ask you this. How do you think, uh, how well do you think God's will is being carried out in heaven? Think it's like an 80% proposition? Like 95, you think? (laughs) How many of you think God's will is being done in heaven? 100%. So he says, you have not because you ask not. What does that mean? I jotted down this Romans 12, 2 promises that if we present our bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to the Lord, not conformed to this world, he says we'll be able to prove what is that good, acceptable, perfect will of God. You can know it without a doubt. In fact, I also jotted down Colossians 1, 9, which says that we're to be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. God doesn't want you going around in your life, well, I hope, maybe, I think, well, I guess. I, I pray for my girls every day. I, I love my wife and daughters more than I can tell you. And um, Brianna's married. She's um, 26 years old, married to Andrew Spence from Providence Baptist in Riverview, Florida. And it was really neat when she and Andrew met. They were in high school. I wasn't going to let them date till they got to college, didn't. But um, Brianna told me later she wanted it to be that she would fall in love with one guy, date that one guy, and marry that guy. That's how it worked out. I've been praying since they were kids. Lord, Whoever's the right guy for my girls, prepare him today. Prepare him for Brianna and Brianna for the guy. Well, that turned out to be Andrew Spence. Prepare Heather for the guy. I don't know who the guy is, but the Lord knows. Prepare Heather for that guy. Lene, she's only 12. Lord, if you want Lene to get married, prepare Lene for the guy and the guy for Lene. I've been praying that since they were kids. Have you ever heard parents say, oh man, our kids made this choice and oh, if we'd have known that was going to turn out like this, we never would have... Okay, you and I don't know what's going to happen, but guess who does? God does. He says, you have not because you what? Ask not. So thy will be done. How about we start praying? Lord, how do you want to use my kids in ministry? How do you want to direct as far as where we live and the job we take and the church we go to? And I mean, there's no end to what we pray about. But I want to ask you, have you, got, have you brought God into consultation in the decisions you're making? Thy will be done. Right here in my world. How about if in church business meetings we pray, Lord, let your will be done in church finances and church business just like it's being done in heaven. How about in our marriage? God, let your will be done in our marriage just like it's being done in heaven. Lord, in, in, in our vacation, it seems like, man, we go on vacation, everybody gets upset, we get on a fight. How about praying during vacation time? Spring break's coming up. Lord, let your will be done in our family time, just like it's being done in heaven. That'd be a good thing to pray, wouldn't it? And he says, you have not because you ask not. We are halfway through. Tomorrow we'll delve into it a little deeper. I hope you'll come for the next three. Let me finish with a fascinating story. Something more than answers. This is out of a book that I, I mentioned yesterday and um, Life's Ultimate Privilege. I think it's a fitting way to close on prayer tonight. Many years ago at a Bible conference, the late Dr. D.M. Stearns had a question hour. One question handed him read, If you had prayed all your life for the salvation of a loved one, and then you got word that person had died without giving any evidence of repentance, having lived a sinful life, what would you think? both of prayer and of the love of God and his promise to answer. It was a striking question, and everyone in the room wondered how he would respond. Well, dear sister, he began, 
I should expect to meet that loved one in heaven, for I believe in a God who answers prayer. And if you put that exercise upon your heart to pray for that dear one, it's because he doubtless intended to answer it. Then he told this story. Many years ago, there was a dear mother in Philadelphia who had a very wayward son. This young man, though brought up in church, had never trusted Christ. He drifted into everything worldly and unholy. He had gone to sea and had become a very rough, careless, godless sailor. One night, his mother was awakened with a deep sense of need upon her heart. When fully awake, she thought of her son and was impressed. He was in great danger. As a result, she got up and prayed that God would undertake for her boy whatever his need might be. She didn't understand it, but after praying, listen to this, after praying for several hours, there came a sense of rest and peace, and she felt sure in her heart that God had answered. Getting back into bed, she slept soundly until the morning. Day after day, she kept wondering why she'd been awakened and why she'd been prompted to pray, but somehow she could not feel the need to pray for her son anymore. Rather, she praised God for something which she felt sure that God had done for him. Several weeks passed. One day, the mother heard a knock at the door. When she opened the door, there stood her son. Entering the room, he announced, Mother, I'm saved. Then he told her this amazing story. He explained how a few weeks earlier, his ship had been tossed in the, in the mid-Atlantic by a terrible storm, and there seemed no hope of riding through it. One of the masts of the ship had snapped, and as the captain called for the men to go out and cut it away, they stepped out, he among them, cursing God that they had to be out on a night like this. Suddenly, the ship gave a lurch. A great wave caught that young man at that very moment and swept him overboard. As he struggled helplessly with the enormous power of the sea, the awful thought came to him, I'm lost forever! Suddenly, he remembered a hymn that he had heard in his boyhood days. There's life in a look at the crucified one. There's life at this moment for thee. Then look, sinner, look unto him and be saved, unto him who was nailed on the tree. He cried out in agony of heart, Oh God, I do look. I look to Jesus. In that moment, he was carried to the top of the waves and lost all consciousness. Hours afterward, when the men came out following the storm to clear the deck, they found this fellow lying unconscious, crowded up against the bulwark. Evidently, while one wave had carried him off the deck, another had carried him back on. The sailors took him to the cabin and gave him restoratives, medicine. When he came to, the first words from his lips were, Thank God I'm saved! From that hour on, he had an assurance of salvation that meant everything to him. Having finished his story, uh, finished his story, the mother uh, then told how her... I'm sorry. Having, the boy having finished his story, the mother told her son how she had prayed for him that very night. They discovered it was exactly at the time when he was in such a desperate plight that God had heard and answered. Now suppose, Dr. Stern continued, that young man's body had never been brought back to the ship. Suppose he'd sunk down to the depths. People might have thought he was lost forever in his sin, but God in his loving kindness not only saved him, but permitted him to come back and give testimony of God's wonderful saving grace. A lot like the story last night of the fellow who was hitchhiking. And sometimes you and I don't know how the prayer gets answered, but I assure you he means it when he says, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Would you stand with me tonight? Thank you. You've listened super well, and I'm really grateful for it.
Father, it's uh, evident to me that you were rerouting me to preach on this matter of prayer. And so, and so I would, with heartfelt sincerity, offer this petition. Lord, teach us to pray. Our heads are bowed. I'm just going to ask this. Instead of a raise of hands, I'm going to ask tonight, would you, would you come and bow before the Lord or turn there at your seat? And, and what is it that God spoke to you about prayer tonight? I'm certain that if you're His child, He spoke to you something about prayer. Either you need to do it or you need to start doing it or you need not to give up on somebody. How, how many of you would testify with a raised hand? I definitely heard something from heaven I needed to hear tonight. Would you hold up your hand? Yeah. So as our pianist begins to play... I'd urge you to respond. Bended knee, if you're able. There's room at the front steps here. There's room at the pew to just bow the knee and say, Dear Lord, please, I, I really earnestly want you to do a work in my heart. And I'd, I'd urge you to make time to bow before the Lord your Maker. Maybe just a teenager, you say, Lord, I'm not really good at this. Remember I told you at the beginning when I was 15, I just started reading the Bible five minutes a day? Why don't you just start with something manageable? Why don't you start with five or ten minutes? Get yourself a list of people for whom to pray. And I, I love to walk and pray. I'll go out and take a walk many times. And uh, usually I'm in an area where I'll, 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 take a, I'll put on a headlamp and walk late at night. Now, when I'm in a city, sometimes uh, like I may go to the hotel and walk the treadmill and do that this week. But I don't always know the area, but typically I'll go out and pray. Lord, I'm not here to tempt you. I'm just out here to walk with you. Please protect me. I want to come out and pray. We'll finish with this. Is it possible there's somebody you need to call out to the Savior just as that young man who was swept out to sea? You, you know about Jesus Christ. You've heard the truths of the gospel, but you've never come to know him. You've not been born again. Told you at the beginning, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Okay, listen. Have you received the Lord Jesus as your Savior? Have you been born again? How many of you standing here before me can say yes to that? Would you lift your hand? Oh, I know the Lord is my Savior. Thank God I do. Amen. Lots of hands. Is there anybody tonight you'd say, please pray for me? I don't know. I, I don't know if God's ever forgiven my sins. I don't know if I'd go to heaven. Anybody like that at all? Pray for me. I don't know. I don't know. We'd love to sit beside you in a quiet place and show you from God's Word, the Bible, how you can receive Christ as Savior. I didn't, I didn't see anybody admit that, but maybe you privately know that's your need. The pastor and I will be out in the foyer here, out in the lobby area. We'd love to talk to you, show you how to be saved. He's going to come here and dismiss in just a minute. It's now 8 o'clock and we'll let you go, but I, uh, I sure appreciate your attentiveness. Come back tomorrow night. If you can't come back, maybe you'll listen in online. I would prefer you to be here in person if you can and we'll finish up Lord teach us to pray